Well, good morning again, everyone. It's a joy to be with all of you this morning, gathering together as believers of Christ, gathered for the single purpose of worshiping and exalting Him. Uh, it's been a week of uh, good news this week for many people at our church, at least two families. Uh, it was Monday afternoon. Huey and Susan welcomed their little one, Isabella Catherine, into this world and their family. We had a chance to visit them and um, a precious uh, little girl, uh, much joy in uh, Huey and Susan's faces, and we rejoice with them with the addition of the little one. look forward to uh, seeing her soon. Um, this past Friday, our family were able to meet with our county worker, our LA County worker, and sign the papers uh, for adoption, uh, to adopt Ethan, so it was a huge milestone a uh, key turning point where the uh, custodianship is removed from the county to to us, and it's going to the legal system now. So he was saying within two or three months, uh, he should be officially and legally um, our son. So that was a huge answer to prayer. We thank you, church, for your prayers, your love, and your support. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Uh-huh. You know, praise to God for just answer prayer. Thank you for, again, just your um, rallying around us and uh, supporting us through this uh, venture. We're, I think, waiting for the Hans. They have a little one in Korea. Uh, just getting fed all this Korean food <laughs> and just enjoying, you know. But any day now, they should hear news and uh, they get to go to Korea again uh, to, uh, you know, have some Enjoy Korea and also adopt this little one. So, uh, I think next we're adopting from Hawaii or something. <laughs> or Fiji. And those kids need, need help. But uh, James 21 is just starting, but really the ministry has started years ago. And we're in the full swing of things. Many of you are praying. Many of you are considering um, biblical exhortation to care for orphans and widows in their distress. So let's continue to uh, see God's will in that area. If you open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're continuing our study in this last epistle of the Apostle Paul, where we find ourselves in verse 8, just to uh, ground ourselves, we'll read verses 8 through 14, but be mindful that we will not come close to finishing this passage today, we're still just in the first command, do not be ashamed, but just to get our bearings right. We're going to read this whole passage. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard a good deposit entrusted to you. Really, the first command that Paul gives to Timothy is found in verse 8. Previous command given to recall, remind is more exhortations. Here we find an aorist subjunctive command, really indicating that Timothy has not been ashamed of the gospel nor of Paul, but because of the temptation of shame is so great, Paul, as a good leader, he anticipates this temptation for Timothy, and he commands Timothy. To not allow this to happen. Do not be ashamed. 
Do not allow them to humiliate you. It is a choice. It is an option. The world trying to shame you is beyond our control. But feeling shame is up to the believer. Do not feel dishonor, disgrace, embarrassment. Webster's definition of shame is as follows. It's a negative emotion caused by an awareness of wrongdoing. In the Bible, he says, the feeling of shame is normally caused by public exposure of one's guilt. And this is the key distinction between shame and guilt. Paul Ekman, in his book, Telling Lies, highlights this distinction for us. Shame, he said, is closely related to guilt, but there is a key qualitative difference. No audience is needed for guilt. No one needs to know, for the guilty person is his own judge. It is not so for shame. The humiliation of shame requires disapproval or ridicule by others. If no one ever learns of a misdeed, there will be no shame. There still might be guilt, but not shame. Guilt is experienced alone. Shame is experienced, in a sense, in a community. Shame has come because of guilt. But guilt doesn't necessarily have shame accompanied by it, if experienced alone. Now why this command? Why, this, why is Paul's first command of Timothy centered around this issue of shame? Do not feel, do not experience shame. Two reasons. It's a quick review from last week. Two reasons. First reason is the hypersensitive culture, shame culture of the New Testament world. They were hypersensitive to shame. David DeSova wrote in his book, Unlocking New Testament Culture, he said, Those living or reared in Asiatic, Latin American, Mediterranean, or Islamic countries have considerable advantage in their reading of the New Testament in this regard. Since many of those cultures place a prominent emphasis on honor and shame. So for those of us who are reared in those cultures of the shame culture, bragging culture, we have an advantage in studying the Bible. Because... There's a similarity with the scripture, the Bible world, and our world. But in our Western world, especially in the 21st century, um, shame is largely foreign to our, to our experience. My wife and I were watching American Idol this week, and uh, Serena leans over to me, and she says, Americans have no shame. <laughs> uh, these people have no shame whatsoever. I mean, outrageous costumes, right? Uh, many of them, it's not singing. Uh, you know, it's rude to laugh at someone when they're singing. But it just can't help it because it's so outrageous, so absurd, so awful. And the funny thing is, they have no shame. They have no, there's no, they're not blushing whatsoever. And this is part and parcel of our society and culture. Like fear factor, people come on and... They embarrassed themselves before millions of people eating all sorts of gross things. I mean, just they're shaming themselves, and yet they feel no shame. American culture, hey, you made money, it's worth it. You had fun, it's fine. You got on TV, that's what matters. It's not about shame. Largely in our culture, shame is a foreign concept but not to the Asian culture still. And to that, that lens, we can understand the first century uh, Middle East culture. Um, we see this, uh, I saw this, I read this report years ago, a Japanese Olympian went uh, to the Olympics and he lost, and he came back and apologized to his city. Apologized, had a press conference, and he apologized to his nation. You never see... Um, you know, athlete from the West do this. To this day, you, know, you watch uh, Channel 18 Korean News and they uh, catch someone. And even like white-collar crimes or even like, you know, just violent crimes, when they're being brought into the police station, 
to a person, what do they do? They cover their faces. They bring their T-shirt up to their faces or they have a jacket or they get a paper and they're covering their faces because of shame. You never see that in America, right? In America, you know, those mugshots, they're like posing, right? They're like, let me do my makeup and hair first. And they're like smiling at the camera, right? I mean, this, this shame, this emotion of shame is so powerful, it trumps even um, desire for life. Desire for life. In World War II, these Japanese soldiers, for them, surrender was shameful. To desire life over one's honor was the most shameful thing. So much so, when they saw American soldiers surrendering to them, they treated them with contempt. They were disgusted by this act of surrendering because you love life more than your honor, so you would surrender to your enemies. For them, dying was not shameful. It was surrendering. For example, in Iwo Jima, there were over 21,000 soldiers, Japanese soldiers, stationed in that island. Out of 21,000 Japanese soldiers, 20,703 died. They captured only 216 Japanese soldiers. Incredible. And those Japanese that were captured was because they were injured. Very few of them surrendered, right? Most of them, they were injured, they couldn't fight, and thus they were captured. In the European front, the Germans were running towards the uh, Western front right, uh, to surrender to the U.S. US Army because they'd be treated so well. They were running to surrender, not so in the Pacific front. Well, that's the kind of culture we find ourselves in in the New Testament. It was a culture that was hypersensitive to shame humiliation, embarrassment. Honor was one of the highest virtues in that culture, in that society. The culture of the first century world was built on the foundational social values of honor and shame. Secondly, the reason, Paul, the reason why Paul commands Timothy not to be ashamed is because shame is an integral part of the gospel an integral component of the gospel message, integral component, component of all believers. Right? The heart of the gospel is the shaming of Christ and the cross. And all believers, there is no honor in being a Christian. And we'll go into this maybe in a week or two. But we're Christians not because we're righteous, not because we're good, not because we're virtuous or moral. He saved us not because of our works. He saved us in spite of our utter depravity and wickedness and sinfulness. There is no honor for us to be followers of Christ. Because we didn't do anything to gain Christ's honor, gain salvation. So there is no honor in the message, and there is no honor in being a Christian. It was in fact shameful in every way. The message of the gospel the shameful message because of the cross. The cross was a mode of execution meant to induce maximum pain and maximum shame on the victim. I mean, to, to punish someone, the physical scars may heal, but to add to the physical torture, they shame uh, this criminal. So that, because oftentimes emotional scars last a lifetime. Emotional scars are the scars that really wound, that really hurt. That was the intention of these small group of soldiers who were out of control at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. And one of their torture techniques was really not just physical torture, but humiliation, shame, and embarrassment. These Arab men, for whom honor was a core virtue, you know, it wasn't our government, it wasn't our, our you know, nation, it was just few rogue uh, soldiers took it upon themselves to shame them by stripping them of their clothes, having them sit in their own human waste, 
put animal collars around their neck, have them walk, crawl around in their spaces, make them lie on top of each other naked. Why? Why? Because they understand that what's more hurtful than physical pain is the emotional pain of being shamed, of being humiliated. Well, the cross was that times 1,000. The cross was that times 1,000. It was the worst punishment that one could experience, the worst shame one could experience. And the central testimony about our Lord was that He was crucified. He was disgraced. He experienced insult upon insult. He experienced this repugnant, demeaning form of execution. It was indeed shame upon shame. And so from a human perspective, imagine yourself in this culture where you're living in this culture where everyone is motivated by shame. Everyone's hypersensitive to shame. Yourself, your family, your community, your country, your religion. And honor is the highest virtue. And in that kind of world, you preach, you believe in a message that is centered around shame of its Lord. The one you worship. Not only that, that message shames you. Because there is no honor in being a Christian. From a human perspective, it is understandable. One would feel shame for the gospel and for fellow believers. This is why Paul's first commandment, first command to Timothy is to not be ashamed. Paul begs Timothy not to be ashamed. John MacArthur in his book, Hard to Believe, wrote, In the first century, the Apostle Paul ministered <coughs> in a shame-sensitive, honor-seeking culture, shamelessly preaching a shameful message about a publicly shamed person. And so the message was offensive. It was scandalous. It was stupid. It was foolish. It was moronic. These two factors combined together to become a powerful force to hinder Christians from standing up for Christ and publicly following Him. Before this shame-sensitive culture and a lot of this shameful message, many Christians cowered and resigned to the potent power of shame and they were made silent. And silence is betrayal. If you do not speak up for Christ, that is betrayal of Christ. That is why in Mark 8.38, Christ said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him. And the Son of Man comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. So Paul commands Timothy here, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Now, we must understand that it is not just a simple command that Paul has given to Timothy here. Really, it is a command that is preceded by a litany of instructions and commands about shame. Let me repeat that. Paul is not just saying, oh, okay, you have shame, Timothy, stop it. All right, just stop it. Don't be ashamed. Timothy's like, oh, okay. Wow, yeah, do not be ashamed. Good, I'm going to stop being ashamed. All right. Great, I'm glad he wrote that because I would have been full of shame. No, it's not so simplistic. It's not so simple. Uh, Bible is not just do this or do that. This command is preceded by a litany of instructions and commands that informs the mind, trains the conscience, and strengthens the will against false shame and equips the believer to have right kind of honor in this world. The Bible is all about that. It's not just about outward conformity to, to the scriptural commands. It's uh, renewing the mind. It's reformation of the heart. It's an internal work, right? Heart, head to the heart to the hands. We don't just do behavior modification. We change our minds, change our thoughts, our beliefs, our values, our, our, our insights, our understandings. And it ultimately results in changed behavior, changed attitudes. 
So Paul is not just saying, just, you know, focus on your external behavior. Really, it's preceded by really a long list of instructions concerning honor and shame. But just to point out the fact that it's renewing the mind, that's the work that needs to be done in Timothy and in all of us. Our response must not be, okay, I've got to just stop feeling shame. I'm going to just stop, you know, being shameful about the gospel or, or, or of Christ's church. We need to uh, have not brain surgery, but mind surgery. Right? Brain is the physical part, right? No, we don't need physical surgery. We need surgery of our minds. In our, in our brain, in our belief system, we, have, we believe some wrong things about honor and shame. And we need to do surgery. We need to cut those things out. And we need to replace what is in our minds with the right things. Uh, Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We need mind surgery. Psalm 51.10 Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Ephesians 1.18 Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Colossians 3:10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what Bible calls us to, if you want to, if you desire to, if you are to truly not be ashamed and rightly stand uh, boasting in our shame for the honor of Christ, we need to undergo mind surgery, not just a shallow external uh, uh, change of our behavior, but a deep, internal, radical uh, surgery of our minds. Right, John 8.31, Christ said, you will know the truth and truth will set you free. Right, truth will set us free from false shame. Later on, Paul talks about the power of God. Do this by the power of God. What is the power of God? It's the word of God. It's not by our own effort. It's not by our own ideas or philosophy. Do not be ashamed, but suffer. And do this by God's truth. God's truth. God's truth. So this is, what, this is exactly what the Bible does for us. The Bible addresses this issue of false shame from various angles. So that we might fight it, mortify it, and instead live for God's honor. Right. So this week we have a three big picture outline. Uh, Three-pronged attack to do this surgery, to cut out shame in our minds and to replace it. Of this three-point outline, we'll get to just the first point. The first approach is to invalidate the shame-inducing power of the world. To not be ashamed, we need to invalidate the shame-inducing power of this world. Secondly, we must rightly, biblically respond the shaming techniques of the world. Rightly respond to it. The world shames us, right? Like, um, I'll use this illustration in a few weeks, but those, um, the Dutch cartoons, Dutch, Dutch cartoonists, you know, drew pictures of Islam and caricatures of, of Muhammad and drew 12 cartoons insinuating that Islam was a violent religion and violent culture. And the Muslims got all violent. Right? They got all angry. And you insulted us. And you, you shamed us. And they put out death threats. And they, they, I think they burned a church. And uh, protested. And caused all this havoc. Um, the Bible says that's not how we respond. When Christ is insulted. When we are slandered. When we are mocked and scorned. We don't, how dare you shame us, right? Maybe our Korean or Asian, you know, false pride, you know, shame wants to do that. But no, the Christian way is not to respond that way. And the thirdly is, 
as a church, we need to respond together by reclaiming right honor, biblical honor and shame, and practice them in the church. There is biblical honor, there's biblical shame, and we respond to the world by reclaiming that and how we relate to one another in the church. Like honor and shame are, are, I mean, in its place are good things. And so we need to practice that rightly in the church. But just the first one today, we must first respond by invalidating the shame-inducing power of this world. New Testament writers give us several reasons why the approval or disapproval of outsiders must not matter to us, why their view of our faith and their view of us is not a reflection of our true honor and worth. And the scriptures give us at least six truths. We'll look at six truths to put into our minds. When we are insulted, slandered, mocked, humiliated, these six truths, we are to recall them to fight against this false shame. First truth is we need to expect to be shamed by this world. Expect persecution. Get ready and prepare ourselves to be persecuted, to be shamed, to be insulted by this world. John Wooden said, uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Um, We must not be caught off guard. We should not be surprised. The Bible presents, uh, presents it to us that persecution is ex- to be expected. It's normal. It's part and parcel. It's routine experience for true followers of Christ. In fact, the lack of it is abnormal. The presence of it is normal. That is why Christ himself warned us and prepared us. John 15:18 through 20. If the world hates you, know this that it hated me first. Verse 20. If they persecuted me, know they will also persecute you. We know they persecuted Christ. So it should be no surprise to us they will persecute us. John 16:1 through 4. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That murdering Christians, they will view it as worship to God, an act of service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when that hour comes, you may remember that I have told you. You will not be surprised. Paul followed the same procedure in Thessalonica. In Thessalonians 3, 2 through 4, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions, For you yourselves, you know we were destined for this. How do you know? Because when we were with you, verse 4, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just it has come to pass and just as you know. You knew this was coming. You knew these persecutions were on its way. How did you know? Because we kept telling you to prepare you for its arrival. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And notice that word, all. All who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted in this world. So, the first way to invalidate the shaming techniques of this world is to prepare for it. And if you didn't know, you know now. You should not catch you by surprise if non-believing family members ostracize you if your own siblings insult you and slander you fellow students co-workers or people of this world shun you 
and try to shame you for following Christ should not catch you off guard. You should say to yourself in response, here it is. The Bible told me, Pastor James told me it's coming and it's here. I've, I'm, I've braced myself. I know what to think. I remember those six things taught to me. Right? And here's the first. I remember and I'm ready. Second thing, second truth to recall when they try to shame you is to consider their ignorance. Consider their ignorance. When the world tries to shame you, remember this truth. The Bible stresses the ignorance of non-believers. Those who do not have faith, do not have the facts necessary to form a right conclusion, a right evaluation. Non-Christians are frequently said to be, quote, in darkness. John 3.19 This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light. John 12.35 The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Their opinion should not be important because they just they simply do not know. They are walking in darkness. They're blind. They don't have all the facts. They're misinformed. They're deceived. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Do not walk no longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says they are spiritually blind, spiritually discerned. So we must understand that. That their judgment is faulty because they just don't know. It's like asking a blind person, right, to evaluate a work of art. And that person evaluates it. You wouldn't take that person seriously. A person who is deaf to evaluate a work of music, you shouldn't take it personally because you just don't know. Years ago, I got invited to um, a friend of ours who was graduating from college with a degree in music, playing piano. So she had a graduation recital. So she invited me, a bunch of our friends, we went, listened to classical music for one, over an hour. Right. Bored to death, right? And she's playing for an hour. And what do I know about classical music? What do I know about piano? Right? I don't know if she's playing the right notes or the wrong notes. To me, they all sound wrong, right? But it sounds offbeat. It just doesn't sound like just right. But after, what do I know? So afterwards, she, I was like, wow, oh, that was really great. You know, I, just, I don't know. I, you know. I just said that, right? It, sounds, it goes very good. And she didn't really appreciate my, my sentiment because she knows you know, my evaluation is based on ignorance, right? I'm darkened in my understanding, right? Uh, if, like, music professors, right, right, composers told us that was great, that means something to her. But for me, it matters little, if not at all. This is the argument of the authors of the New Testament. The shaming directed to us by the unbelievers, are based on their ignorance, so we should not take it to heart. We shouldn't take it personally. And this is how Christ was able to pray for his tormentors on the cross. Remember? He said, Father, forgive them. Why? 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 What was that prayer? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They don't know. I'm not angry at them. I'm not filled with bitterness and hatred. I'm not praying God's wrath upon them. I'm praying for the forgiveness of these soldiers who are crucifying me because they simply do not know what they're doing. If they knew, they would repent. And Matthew 27, soon as God gave them knowledge, centurion repented and said, surely this was the Son of God. Right. Remember Stephen when he was being martyred? the first Christian martyr in church history, what was his prayer when, when he was being stoned? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. 
And what happened? Saul was there and God forgave Saul. As soon as God opened Saul's eyes and Saul realized what he did, what did he do? He repented. And then in 1 Timothy 1.18, what did Paul say? God forgave me because I sinned out of ignorance. I just didn't, I simply didn't know I was martyring a follower of the true God, of true faith. And God forgave Saul. So when Paul was being persecuted by others, his response was, just like Christ, just like Stephen whom I murdered, Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And likewise with us, when we're persecuted, our response is, they just, they just don't know. They're blind. They're deaf. The hearts are callous, hardened. Father, would you forgive them? They lack essential information. If they just knew, they would repent. Not only that, they're spiritually discerned about the matters of the heart. Right? Children's ministry, they're memorizing verses. And the verse that they're memorizing, I think last week was 1 Samuel 16:7. Do not look at his out- outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the, but the Lord judges the heart. So unbelievers look at us and they evaluate us based on our outward appearance, based on our ethnicity, right? Based on, I mean, that was huge in Asia. I remember growing up in Korea. Again, I'm not condoning this. Please understand, you know, our, our adopted boy, Ethan, he's a mixed child. He's very mixed. I think he's 50% Chinese and an eighth black and eighth Filipino and eighth. I forget, <laughs> Caucasian, he's mixed. But in Korea back then, a mixed child was like to be shunned. It was a shameful thing to be a mixed child, right? To be, to be poor, to be come from a broken family, right? All these things were sources of shame, right? To not have money, not have an education, right? all, to work in the field, all these things are a source of shame. The world looks at us and evaluates our outward appearance and say, oh, you know, bad job, you know, no education, oh, you know, no athletic skills, whatever. They evaluate us externally. So they are ashamed of Christians. But not us. Because we don't evaluate one another based on these external categories. We evaluate one another based on Scripture. And Scripture says... Anyone is in Christ, a new creation, the oldest past, the old and new has come. Right? The way we treat one another is the way we treat Christ. Right? So, the first way to invalidate uh, the shamey techniques of the world is by being prepared. Second is by acknowledging their ignorance. Third is when people shame you, consider their shamelessness. Consider their shamelessness. David the Silva in his book again said, to be shamed by the shameless is ultimately no shame at all. To be shamed by the shameless is ultimately no shame at all. The Bible repeatedly and strongly stress the shamelessness of people in this world. How they are immersed in all kinds of sinful behavior and activity. And they are not ashamed at all. In fact, they boast and they glory and they are proud of their sinful endeavors so knowing that right like Bertrand Russell wrote a book why he's not a Christian and he attacks uh, uh, Christian faith but you look at Bertrand Russell's life and how he divorced his wife remarried committed adultery uh, was a drunkard I look at Frederick Nietzsche Nietzsche and how he's like God is dead and we're all oh, he you know he's a atheist attacking Christians but you look at his life how he died of syphilis I went in the insane asylum I was had no friends that's how we look when we, when we're ashamed we look at their conduct and compare their conduct with ours and that states the truth. So being put to shame by those who are living shameful lives, there's no shame in that. Right? So the third thing to keep in mind when we're being shamed is that. Number four, moving on, is um, when people try to shame you, recall this truth. 
that being shamed in the world is a badge of honor for the Christian. Right? It's a badge of honor. Right? If you're insulted for Christ, persecuted for Christ. Wow. Man, I'm jealous. The badge of honor in the Christian community. I'll give you an indirect illustration. I hope it makes sense. I remember this, this, this distinctly. Sophomore in college. I had, four, I had 11 units or something, and to you know, qualify for full-time, I needed one more unit. So I took a Cal State Long Beach PE basketball, right? So you take this class, and you get one unit for playing basketball. I was like, man, I'm in. I show up early. I stay late. <laughs> so only class, right? Anyway, so, so I go to this class. First day there, so we all go five on five, and I... I don't know, maybe this is just my own opinion, right? Not accurate. But I think they were racist or something, right? They just can't think a Korean guy can play basketball. So we're playing five on five. I'm bringing the ball up, and they, they, it was co-ed class. So I don't want to offend anyone, but, okay, just me being a guy, okay? So it's a co-ed class, and they tell this girl to guard me. Right? <laughs> She's barely taller than Elizabeth, right? So I'm jumping up the court, and this girl is guarding me. Right, I was. It was a shameful experience. It's embarrassing. To this day, I'm scarred. Right, I really. Some might think, "Oh, this is great. I'm gonna be superstar today. I'm gonna be all star. I'm gonna rock this girl. I'm gonna take it to the hole and you know score double digits and right. I'm gonna be the man." But no, if they put the worst defender on you, that is not good. They're not showing you respect or honor. They're shaming you, right? On the opposite, if they put the best player to defend you, that is not shameful, right? You're playing ball or any sport, and they put the best player up to defend you. They're showing you respect, showing you honor. You might have a much more difficult time playing. You might not score as much, but you know they're respecting your game. Well, likewise, as a Christian, there is the... Right? If... They don't attack you. They don't insult you. You might have an easier life, right? Easier time. Your life is much easier at, at home, at work, in the world. Much easier time. But that means you're not standing for your faith, right? You're not following Christ. Right? You're not a strong Christian in any sense of the word. So you might have an easier life, but the world is insulting you. And there's shame in the Christian community as well because we know right, you're having an easy life. No one is defending you because, attacking you because you're compromising. You're living in sin. Right? But if people do attack you, people are persecuting you, insulting you, scorning you, and you're having a tough time at home, tough time at work with your friends, persecution and conflict abounds in your life you might be a loner but it's a badge of honor it's not a badge of shame there's self-respect there and there's respect in the christian community god honors you and in that way the world is honoring you as well it is a badge of honor that's what the bible tells us acts 5 40 41 the apostles were beaten. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Right? They got beaten, arrested, they got beaten, they were embarrassed, they were shamed. They went away and they were full of joy. They were praising God. This is honor, a badge of honor. We were persecuted for Christ. Christ went to the cross and now we're really proving ourselves to be faithful Christians because we're persecuted as well. We were dishonored for Christ and for Christians, that is a a badge of honor. 1 Peter 4, 13 through 16, Peter said, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Your joy should be related to how much you suffer for Christ. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Christ said, when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man, Luke 6.22, you are blessed. You are makarios. You are happy. You are honorable. You are favored. On that day, when you are reviled, scorned, excluded, spurned as evil, on that day, Christ tells us to rejoice. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great. So there should be a sense of godly jealousy for those who have been tested and they passed the test. They are persecuted and they stand their ground in Christ. A godly jealousy because of the honor that they receive from the Christian community and from God himself. Fifthly, when we are persecuted, shamed, recall the example of Christ and the godly people of the past. Recall Christ, Hebrews 12, who despised the shame of the cross, endured the cross, despising the shame, and died on the cross with the glory of God. Consider Abraham in Hebrews 11 who is willing to leave behind an honorable existence in a homeland for the low status life of an alien and foreigner in a foreign land. When we are persecuted, remember uh, Moses, Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered the reproach of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. So just remember the examples of Christ, godly people in the past. And finally, number six, when you are persecuted, preach to yourself this. That God is the ultimate and final determiner of honor and shame. The final verdict has not come until God gives that verdict. All honor in this world, all shame is temporal, it's relative. The final verdict is what God says on that judgment day. As Christians, we are to look for God's approval, to be honored in the sight of God, in the sight of God's people. John twelve twenty six, Jesus promised, if anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. What a promise for all who serve Christ. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. Matthew twenty five twenty three. we want to hear those words. But at the end of our lives, we stand before the Lord and He says to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. Come and share in your Master's joy. What honor to hear those words from our King. Well done. Good job. You are a faithful and loyal servant. Enter into your joy. Enter into the Master's joy. Romans 10:11 promises us that anyone who trusts in God will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. So whatever shame we experience on the earth by the enemies of the cross, God will vindicate His people. God will judge and restore the honor of those who have been faithful to Him. And He will cover the enemies of the cross with open shame. On that day, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There'll be many tears of those 
who are honored in this world, shameless in this world, protestant in this world, on day on that day before God, they will be put to shame. So six truths um, to put into our minds so that we would not be ashamed, but we would live lives honoring Christ. Again, we have review, expect persecution, be prepared. When persecuted, consider their ignorance. They don't know what they're doing. Thirdly, consider not their words, but their way of life. Consider their conduct. Consider their shamelessness. Fourthly, understand being, being shamed is a badge of honor. You should be full of joy. You should leap for joy when you're given the privilege to be slandered or insulted for Christ. When persecuted, recall the example of Christ, how he suffered, how he was shamed, humiliated. Consider the shame and humiliation of godly saints in the Bible and in church history. And then finally, our final appeal is to God, who determines true honor and true shame. Holy and gracious Father, we do thank you for your truths. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. For many of us, if not all of us, we have not been tested. Our faith has not been pressed in such ways as revealed to us by the scriptures. Help us, O Lord, to not um, magnify our our petty persecutions, our our temporal slight uh, pains and trials that come our way. Lord, we pray that um, you would humble us, that we would be prepared for the true persecutions that come to all believers with sincere faith. Help us. We ask the Holy Spirit to do uh, spiritual surgery in our minds, to cut away all this false shame and false honor, to consider them rubbish, and to replace them with these truths so that we would have right honor before you and experience right kind of shame in this world as we stand for Christ. Lord, we take to heart Paul's command to Timothy. We receive it with, with much joy. We uh, humbly seek to hold high the cross without shame as we follow after you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.